Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. My guest is Professor Jonathan Lynch, PhD, always distinguished professor, part of the Department of Plant Sciences at Penn State University. And we're going to talk about his research and the root and rhizosphere biology. So welcome, Jonathan. Thank you for coming. Thank you, Richard. Good to be here. If you would, tell me a bit about your background and how you got into uh, plant biology. When I was about nine years old, there was a famine in Africa. And I had the impression from what I saw on TV that it was related to drought and low soil fertility and poor food production. And I thought it was terrible and I wanted to grow up and do something about it. So I had this notion in my mind from that age that I wanted to, you know, somehow develop plants that could withstand these conditions. And that's basically what I've done ever since. Oh, that's really cool. Wow. At nine. It's amazing that you thought that stuff and uh, you wanted to do it for so long. It's cool. Yeah. It's a good thing I didn't see some show about interior decorating, right? Might have gone in a different direction. So throughout your career, maybe we could hit a few highlights. Like what is some of the research you've done that you, you thought was really useful or valuable or super interesting or insightful about plant biology? Well, yeah. So in thinking about how plants, we can improve the growth of crops under drought and low soil fertility, which are major constraints globally and getting worse because of climate change and soil degradation. And thinking about that is actually a hard problem because plants, since they moved onto the land about 500 million years ago from the ocean, you know, they've had to deal with drought and low soil fertility, and they've developed a number of ways to deal with that. And so, and furthermore, farmers in agriculture, especially third world farmers who don't have fertilizers and irrigation, you know, they have been selecting crops adapt well to these stress conditions. So basically, it's a hard problem that plants have been dealing with for a long time. Like, how can we make them better at something that they already do or they already adapted to? And very early on in our work, I did my PhD and then, then uh, my first professional assignment was at the International Center for Tropical Agriculture. I was a senior scientist there. Headquarters in Colombia, South America, but we were working in Africa and many other developing regions where these stress conditions are a primary limitation to food security. And uh, very early on, we realized that the key was the root. That leads pretty much know what to do with water and nutrients once they get them, but some plants can acquire more from the soil than other plants, and that's because of their roots. And so this is a huge knowledge gap, continues to be a huge challenge because obviously roots are super complicated, uh, complex root systems are, you know, thousands or millions of individual segments which are different from each other. The soil varies in time and space dramatically. It's an opaque medium that's very difficult to observe. And then if you try to observe roots as well, you actually change things and, and interrupt the normal processes. The question, is soil itself a transport mechanism for any nutrients or, you know, the matrix is solid, nothing really moves unless earthworms or other creatures move it along. Again, if you look at the composite of soil itself, does it have a transportation network somehow? It does. And the soil itself doesn't usually move, but things in the soil can move. And this is one of the challenges that plants need things like water and nitrate, which move readily in the soil. 
And they also need things like phosphorus, which does not move in the soil. So they need both immobile and, and mobile resources. And to further complicate things, you know, roots are expensive. They're like you and me. They need sugar and resources from someplace else. They don't photosynthesize. And so if a plant builds a huge root network, it's not going to grow because the roots are burning up all the, the daily photosynthate production. And so this is kind of a multidimensional problem where, you know, if the soil is quite complex, you know, the plants can't grow roots everywhere, yet they need to grow roots to get different kinds of resources. They, they interact with soil microorganisms in important ways. People didn't know what to measure about roots, what were the important traits that should be measured. So it was just, you know, it remains a challenging problem. But when I began this work some decades ago, it was, you know, we really didn't have a clue as to how we would breed plants with better roots. I mean, everybody wanted that. Farmers would think that was a great idea. Plant breeders would think, yeah, that's a great idea, but what actually can I do? What can I select for and how do I select for it? So those are some of the challenges we confronted. And so over the course of these many years, you know, in doing this research, we have discovered a range of traits or what we call fiends. Okay. Now everybody's heard about genes. Genes are elements of the genotype, an element of genetic inheritance. People are probably less familiar with the word fiend, P-H-E-N-E. Fiend is an element of the phenotype, right? And so we've discovered a number of fiends and fiend states that are associated with much better performance of crops under drought and low soil fertility. And we've developed ways to, to understand them and research them and ways to measure them in the field accurately because you need, you know, for breeding, you need a high throughput phenotype. You need to go quickly because you need to look at a lot of plants. And we've used that information to actually breed crops that have much better performance than before. Well, what does the uh, low fertility soil look like? How does it get that way? And what is the low fertility aspect of it? What makes it so? Well, that's a good question because if the listeners are in rich countries like you know Western Europe or, or the U.S., we are blessed with generally good soils. And furthermore, we had lots of fertilizers, so it's not so much of a problem, although the use of fertilizers creates additional problems. But in most parts of the world where most people live, soils do not have the nutrients that plants need because they're old and weathered. The nutrients have washed out to the ocean. There's competition between plants, so maybe there's some resource in the soil, but your neighbors have just taken it up. So, you know, low nutrient availability, especially the big ones, nitrogen and phosphorus, these are primary pervasive limitations to all life on Earth. In fact, even in the oceans. So plants have evolved, we have evolved as people, to need mineral resources like phosphorus and nitrogen that are just scarce. They're not very common. They're not very abundant. And then many soils, for example, you know, most of the plants on Earth, if you look at the Earth from space, you see all the green areas where all the forests are. Well, those are areas where there's rainfall. Uh, the Sahara Desert has no plants because there's no rainfall. But whenever there's rainfall, you gradually weather the soil and the soil gets old and depleted and nutrients wash out to the ocean and the soil becomes less fertile. And so basically most of the plant biomass on earth, and certainly the terrestrial ecosystems, let's focus on that part today, are growing with low fertility. Uh, that's a common condition. And so in, in agriculture, in rich country agriculture, we alleviate that through intensive fertilization and sometimes we can irrigate crops, but that creates huge problems. It's not sustainable. For example, the biggest, perhaps the, the single most important crop on earth from many metrics is maize, corn, although rice and wheat are also very important for human food, but corn is grown on a huge acreage in the world. 
And, you know, in the U.S., the biggest economic cost of growing corn is nitrogen fertilizer. The biggest energy cost of growing corn is nitrogen fertilizer. The biggest environmental cost of growing corn is nitrogen fertilizer. And more than half the nitrogen fertilizer we apply to corn is never even taken up by the plants. It washes into the groundwater where it causes pollution or goes off into the atmosphere where it causes greenhouse gas warming. So, you know, so in the poor countries, we have a situation where people have low yields, low food security, low economic development because drought and poor soils. In the rich countries, we try to alleviate that within that input use causes huge problems. So in both places, I mean, globally, this is a challenge for all of humanity, you know, how to sustain 10 billion people in a degraded environment. And a big part of that is we need to develop crops that do not require this intensive fertilization that can grow. What about nitrogen fixing? I mean, you know, planting legumes or cover crops. That's that's a great question. And that's, you know, traditionally an important thing. You'll rotate, for example, soybeans and corn, and the soybeans fix enough nitrogen for themselves and leave some nitrogen left over for the corn crop. And so legumes are important, but the, you know, most of our major food crops are not legumes. Our major, mainly we're eating cereal. Your rice, wheat, corn are the major food crops. Potatoes are important. And none of these guys fix nitrogen. And, you know, there's a reason for that. It's very expensive for the plant to fix nitrogen. It's a very complex process that hasn't evolved in all these plants. And so there are some efforts, you know, underway to see if we can develop like corn that fixes nitrogen. But some of us, you know, thought about these kinds of issues, think, okay, well, even if you're successful, it's a hard challenge, but maybe you were successful somebody to get corn that would fix nitrogen. But now you're going to, you know, cut yields by 60, 70%. And that's what happens. I mean, corn yields more than soybeans because it's expensive for the plant to fix its own nitrogen. So that's not a, a cure-all. I mean, we can't rely just on nitrogen fixation. But yes, you're right. I mean, there are agronomic solutions. We can manage our soils better. What's the limiting factor? Is, is nitrogen one of the most difficult things to get, or is it phosphorus? Because it doesn't move, as you said, you know, or potassium. What is yeah, the I mean, hardest? Yeah, I mean, globally, I believe drought is the biggest single problem globally. We look at the entire planet. And in fact, if you go to the U.S. Drought Monitor website run by the University of Nebraska, you can see that as of, you know, September 2023, we have massive challenges with drought in the U.S. And then there's a global drought monitor site that shows you we have their massive challenges with drought today in many important regions of the globe. And then all of the data are telling us that that's been getting worse because of climate change and the projections are very alarming. And in the next 10, 20, 30 years and beyond, drought's going to become even more significant of a limitation. So drought is a huge problem. Uh, you know, plants need more water than they're likely to get. And the, the problem's getting worse because of climate change and it's getting worse because we're degrading our soil. Now, the other two major problems that plants face is nitrogen and phosphorus. You're breathing nitrogen right now. Most of the air you breathe is nitrogen but it's in a form that you cannot access, plants cannot access. It's nitrogen, triple bonded with nitrogen. It's very difficult to break that bond. Plants cannot do it. Animals cannot do it. Some microbes can do. And so since, you know, the evolution of life billions of years ago, certain bacteria have developed the capability to break that triple bond and use that nitrogen. And now nitrogen fixing crops like soybeans and common bean kind of work with bacterial partners to break that bond and get some nitrogen from the air, but that it, they have to give the bacteria sugar. And so it's a costly process. Phosphorus is another interesting and very important problem most people are not so aware of that, you know, phosphorus is just 
you know, nature evolved to need phosphorus, but it's really not that abundant on Earth just because of the the nature of, you know, exploding stars when they make heavy elements like phosphorus, there's just not a lot of phosphorus. So everywhere in the universe, there's just not a lot of phosphorus. And furthermore, it binds with a bunch of things. And so it's often bound up. Most of the phosphorus in soil is bound up in forms that the plants can't use. And it doesn't move. And then so if the if over time, like in the Amazon Basin, you know, over millions of years, soils are washing out to the ocean, there's erosion. Well, that's taking phosphorus with it. And that phosphorus is not going to come back unless you have like a volcano or, you know, some huge geologic process. So over time, systems get lower and lower in phosphorus, which is low to begin with. And so and so we fertilize with phosphorus. Now with nitrogen, we can make from nitrogen fertilizers by just using energy and we can take it from the air. It's energy intensive, but it's a, it's all around us. We're breathing it right now. With phosphorus, in contrast, it's a non-renewable mineral resource. In other words, it's, it's non-renewable in the sense that, yes, phosphorus stays on the planet no matter what we do with it, but it's not going to necessarily be in an available, usable form. The way we make phosphor fertilizer is we mine it from high-grade ore deposits, which are concentrated in just a few countries, including, fortunately for us as Americans, the United States. So we can dig it up out of the ground and concentrate it and put it on our crops. And many estimates indicate that those mines, those phosphorus mines, are being depleted at a fast rate and are likely to be over 50% depleted this century. And so people have talked about the OPEC of the future. I mean, right now, OPEC is Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries, and there's several dozen members, right? Well, the future, the OPEC is going to be Organization of Phosphorus Exporting Countries, and it's only going to have like six members. So it's really much more concentrated. And for petroleum, we don't really need petroleum. You know, like I drive an electric car and you can make synthetic oils and, you know, we don't, it's very useful what we can do without petroleum if we needed to. You cannot do without phosphorus. So this is a big concern also is that, is that can we sustain, you know, a population of 10 billion people when we're running out of these phosphorus mines? So that in all these cases, whether it's water, nitrogen or phosphorus, it would just be so much better if we had crops that didn't need as much, that had better roots, that were able to get it out of the soil better. So they would produce better in poor countries. They were to give more food and, and yield and income. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. How do the roots extract the, you know, NPK, you know? Well, those are the things we've been studying. And, you know, a lot of what we're doing has to do with where the roots are and what it costs to make that. root. Like, do you want to make shallow roots or deep roots? How do you make shallow roots? How do you make deep roots? And how much does it cost a plant to make those? And can we reduce the cost of that? Can we have cheaper roots? So, for example, the idiotype, the idiotype means the ideal goal. For example, if you're breeding a German shepherd, it has to look a certain way. That's the German shepherd idiotype. Our idiotype for more water and nitrogen efficient crops is called steep, cheap, and deep. So the roots deep. go into the soil. They don't cost very much, which means you can produce more roots. And they go deep in the soil because that's where you tend to find the water and the nitrogen is deep. Whereas for phosphorus, we have a different idiotype called topsoil foraging because phosphorus doesn't move. It stays in the topsoil. 
And so, you know, we, there's a lot of things we have to figure out and our work has included genetics and physiology and also computer science and also, you know, sociology and ecology. Like if we introduce these crops in poor communities around the world, are we going to mine the soil and who benefits and what's the economics of it? And so that's all been part of our work, but we have not only shown this is feasible and developed tools for people to use for this task, which is a, you know, a civilizational challenge. It's something we have to do, but it's really hard. But the nuts and bolts, again, how does a phosphorus get into soil. How is it replenished at all, for instance? How is nitrogen replenished? How is potassium replenished? Typically. Let's not talk about potassium for the moment because it's not as much of a problem. It is a problem in acid soils, but it's not as much sure. in, in other soils. But nitrogen, it's most of the nitrogen, you know, is in the air that we're breathing, but it's not available. Right. It has triple bond that cannot be broken. And so lightning strikes can break the bond. There's some nitrogen coming out of the sky in terms of lightning. In polluted rich countries, there's acid rain because when we burn petroleum in our cars and factories or coal or you know those kinds of products, those come from ancient plants and they have nitrogen and sulfur in them. And so when you burn them, nitrogen and sulfur goes into the sky. And when it rains, acid rain, you have nitric acid and sulfuric acid coming out of the sky. So there's some nitrogen from that in rich countries, although as we do, you know, as we have cleaner air, then that's less of a contribution. This is recent, like anthropomorphic stuff, like historically, typically the majority of nitrogen that gets to the soil is from nitrogen fixing bacteria. Is that right? That's right. That's absolutely right. And phosphorus is in volcanic rock. It's in mountain rocks that are up thrust, you know, it's in minerals, but it's not very available. And as I was saying, like, if you look at South America, you know, the Andes is on the West coast, it's being uplifted. There's active mountain building, there's phosphorus in those mountains, although it's not very available. Now you look at the trailing edge of that uh, continental plate, that's the Amazon, that surface hasn't had mountains for many millions of years. And so that phosphorus is just every year washes out to sea. And if your listeners are ever in an airplane flying over the mouth of a river, you look down and you'll see the sediment washing out. It happens at every river on earth, including Mississippi. So soil sediments, including phosphorus and nitrogen, are washed out to the ocean. They're not going to come back until that ocean floor ends up being a new mountain. I mean, that's millions of years. So in the span of geologic time, it, it can cycle. But in the span of human time, it's lost. You know, it's like we can't get that back. Uh, and so it gradually is depleted. Nitrogen we can get from the air, but phosphorus is kind of, you know, gradually depleted. So these are big challenges, as I say. I mean, you know, of all the challenges we face in this century, I think a very significant one for for, for young people today is you can have 10 billion people, you know, how are they going to feed them in a world where the soils are getting worse, the climate's getting worse, the rainfall's getting more scarce, the phosphorus is getting more scarce. Yeah, it's, it's more expensive to, to use nitrogen fertilizer. And there are people working on this. I mean, my colleagues and I have been trying to work on this, although I have to say the effort is not very intense or focused. I think most governments don't really get it. I think China's kind of focused on it, but here in the U.S., it's sort of a, you know, kind of, it's not the all hands on deck moment you would expect it would be. It's more like business as usual. Let's do research on a number of things, including these things. But the Gates Foundation has been good, for example, in focusing on some of these things. But there are solutions. There are biological solutions to these problems that will have to be developed. But, you know, my concern is that they're not being developed fast enough. We have 850 million people hungry today, and that number is growing in Africa. You know, so it's not as if it's a future problem. It's a today problem. All right. Well, with uh, with roots, um, for instance, like how do they how do they know to go deeper versus stay shallow? 
What are some of the nuances? That's complicated. Yeah, that would take a while to explain because roots are smart. They can sense things and respond to their environment. They're so-called plastic. Plasticity is what we call that in biology. But most of what we're trying to do in breeding is tell the plant to do a certain thing by genetics. We say, look, we're going to give this plant the genetics to make cheaper roots. We're going to give it the genetics to have steeper angles so it goes deeper into the soil. We're going to give it the genetics to make this root structure which we found to be beneficial, that sort of thing. So it's kind of genetics approach because that's what's needed in breeding better crops. And, you know, our genetics, you know, we have done single gene manipulations in order to write a paper, scientific paper or something. But because our clients include poor countries, and in many countries in Africa, they don't even accept genetically modified crops. And also because these traits are what we call quantitative traits. They're controlled by many genes. They're complicated traits. Because you can imagine. Over the course of 500 million years, if there was a single gene that made plants better at getting water, they would have already discovered that. They would have already done it, right? So these are complicated traits with trade-offs controlled by many genes. And so, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to, we're helping people and we ourselves are selecting for the phenotype. We're selecting for the better plant and kind of old-fashioned breeding plants that look better and that do better. And it's been very successful. Our lines in Africa, Asia, Latin America are yielding twice as much as the best lines we had before, which shows the whole value of this approach. Well, again, how do, um, in brief, how do roots know, how do they sense moisture, certain nutrients, et cetera? What makes them go shallow versus deep? Yeah, that's kind of a complicated topic that might take some time to describe, but I can give you an example from recent work that we're doing right now and that we've been publishing just recently, which is that one of the things that happens when soils get dry is they get hard. And I think, you know, your listeners know about this if they've ever worked with clay or mud. I mean, hard clay is hard. Uh, soft, it, you know, wet clay is soft, right? And so the same with most soils. If they dry out, they get hard. And so roots can choose to either push through that hard soil or not. There's a stop signal that's actually controlled by the gaseous hormone ethylene, okay, that tells the root, oh, now I'm hitting something hard. Do I want to keep powering through and change, you know, your shape and form so that you could push through it? Or do I want to say, just forget it? And so, you know, our idea, our research is telling us it's better if they don't even try to push through that hard soil. Why? Because how under drought conditions, what soil dries first is usually the top part of the soil. And there might be water down deep. And once again, roots are expensive. So from the plant point of view, why try to power through hard soil if there's no water there? Why not just stop there and devote your efforts to growing in the soft wet soil that's down deep? And we're finding that, yeah, indeed, that seems to be a good strategy. So we that's there's genetic variation for that. We know that, for example, some corn plants, some wheat plants power through and others stop. And now with this information, and now we have some genes controlling that trait and so on, we can breeders can say, okay. Let's select for plants that stop when they hit something hard. That's called the stop signal or ethylene. But one example, I have many traits we've worked with we could talk for a long time. But uh, that's an example of one of the ways roots sense what's in the soil is through the hardness of the soil. They also have ways of sensing where the phosphorus is, where the nitrogen is. And so it has been known for many years that roots will tend to branch, make their branching where they see a patch of nutrients. But think about it. Once again, in terms of a plant in the field, if you're growing roots and roots are expensive and you see a little patch of fertilizer and you grow all your roots there, 
Well, in the case of nitrogen, that fertilizer is going to wash away. And all your roots are sitting there in the soil, the fertilizer is washed away. And, and there's another example where it's in like our analysis is, no, the plant should ignore that. The plant should not pay attention to where the nitrogen is today because eventually it's going to leach down to deeper soil layers. And so the plant ought to just go as deep as it can and eventually it'll catch the, nit- the nitrogen. But that's, you know, they, these are the kinds of things we're trying to research. We're trying to guide breeders to say, okay, what do we want plants to do? which in some cases depends on the soil and the ecosystem they're grown in and so on. Because like, what do we want plants to do? And there's so much genetic variation without doing genetic modification. There's just natural variation for these things. We see plants, when we look at roots, you see plants that are deep and shallow and thick and thin and many and few, everything you can imagine you can see in roots. But we don't know which one is best. If we know which one is best and some of the genetics behind it, we can figure out a way to make plants that look like that. And I think that's the answer. You know, we have to, so I think, Going forward, the next some decades, instead of looking at a field, as I talk to you, I'm looking out the window at my neighbor's farmer farmer's field with corn and soybeans. I think it's going to look very different. For example, I think we're going to see plants that have with shiny leaves that have shiny hairs, trichomes that reflect the sun and keep the leaves cooler. I think we're going to see dwarf corn. We might see perennial corn. We're, you know, I mean, we just have to rethink agriculture because we can't keep doing it the way we're doing it, and we need to do something different. Okay, understood. When you said roots are expensive, uh, what does that mean? Just a ton of nutrients are needed to produce roots or to have them go deep or, you know, what does that mean? Well, yeah, it's like, well, you and I need carbohydrates and energy from something else because we're heterotrophic. We don't photosynthesize. We have to eat food, right? Roots are the same way. They need sugar and resources from someplace else, the leaves. And so our analyses, other people have shown that, especially when a plant is under drought or low, low fertility soil, you know, over half of the daily photosynthesis that occurs throughout the entire day is used up by the root system. And that means you can't make yield with that. You can't grow more leaves with it. You're just keeping the roots go. And that's one reason that our idiotype, for example, is deep, cheap, and deep. Cheap means you have cheaper roots that don't need as much goodies. And anything we do to make roots cheaper, the plant does better under stress. We can double yield under drought multiple ways if we have you know, if we can make the roots cheaper, and we've shown that. But then once again, this it's, it's not a simple problem because then if the roots are cheaper, maybe they're more susceptible to being eaten by something in the soil or there's some kind of trade-off. In other words, you know, nature has already been working on this problem once again. So it's a non-trivial problem, but there are paths for, there are solutions for. We can get root systems that are cheaper. We can select them that are deeper or shallower. We can improve yield under these stresses in the seal. The bottleneck, you know, one of the bottlenecks is that there's just not a huge effort devoted to this in the United States. And also that in the United States, you know, a lot of the effort of, of scientists has been devoted in the past several decades to genes and understanding genes, which is great. But the kind of things we're talking about is not at the genetic level. It's more at the organismic level or the phenotype level or, you know. So you have to think about how those genes affect traits, which affect roots, which affect water capture, which affect crops. Yeah, but if you just said that it's not just at the genetic level, but the phenotypic level, what about epigenetic? What about other signaling mechanisms? Why just focus on genes? Well, yeah, you're right. There's very, there's hugely complex signaling networks. There's hugely complex genetic networks and epigenetics and microRNAs. I mean, there's all kinds of, you know, so it's like a huge complex tangle of things that organisms do, including plants. And so that whole question is really how, how plants sense things, how plants do things, how they grow roots, how roots respond. And see, that's not the bottleneck for breed and impact today, and but 850 million hungry people, climate change, et cetera. The impact is, so what? 
Who cares? Why? Why do plants do that? What do we want plants to do? Regardless of how they figured out where the water is, do we want them to stop or not? Do we want them to grow where the nitrogen is or not? So it's kind of a different level of question. You know, I'm not trying to say that we don't need information about molecular mechanisms. I'm not saying that by any means. I'm saying that, you know, we know a lot about that and it's usually complicated and we're learning more, but it's not clear how you go from that to solving any agricultural problem because there's so many levels of organization above that you, that you need to understand. Well, how are you supposed to understand things if you just put it if everyone's just focused on genes and they ignore the microbiome, the rhizosphere, you know, the viral, you know, fungal interactions. Well, that's a very good question. And I, you know, I just mentioned I'm an American, my career in the U.S., although I've had jobs internationally also. But and I think this is a challenge for all of science. In other words, you know, we have a good system in America of doing science and figuring things out. But I think in China, for example, or Europe, they have a more of a coordinated approach where they'll say, okay, everybody, we definitely know we need crops that need less nitrogen, phosphorus, and water. So here's a bunch of money. And here's you group of people who are experts in this here. You are tasked to do this. We're going to make sure you have resources and students and facilities and work together at different levels, including genetics and microbiome and all that stuff and soil science and whatever, and get it done. And that's not better a model in America. It was our model for the space program. It might, it's our model for building weapons. But for plant research, agricultural research, it's more sort of at the upstream fundamental research level. It's more like, well, this is cool. Let's figure this out. Or this is an exciting new thing. Let's do that. You know, it's not so much oriented towards solving a problem in a limited period of time. And China is so well coordinated. I'm sure that you talk to scientists over there. I mean, what learnings are we getting? Are they getting results? Are they sharing them? They are. And more and more, you're seeing a lot of very important papers coming from Chinese groups who have that more coordinated approach. So I think this is a you know talking about the how science works. I'm glad that not everybody does it the way the U.S. does it because there's different models of how to do science, and I think some of them are going to pay off sooner than others. I guess. But we need what I'm saying is in this case, unlike some types of science, you know, some types of science like astronomy, for example, it's okay if it takes a while to figure it out because it's not a pressing human concern. But the matters that we're talking about are affecting a lot of people today, and it's going to get worse. So it's every day we waste. By not having a better plant, that results in lives, environmental damage, you know. So there's kind of an urgency that applies to this domain of research that's not the same in other domains of research. Okay. Well, very good. What's the best place for people to find out more about your research? Where can they go? If you're interested in, in my research, and I have a website, you type in Jonathan Lynch, Penn State, or, you know, Jonathan Lynch Root Biology, or something like that, Penn State Root Biology, see what I'm doing. And there's a lot of papers there and videos and other things like that. And so that would be a place to begin. Okay. Well, very good. Well, Jonathan, thank you for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you, Richard. Good luck. Stay well. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.